turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 17. And we shall read that whole chapter. And we will attempt to go through it, but you have homework to go through it again and again and again. So let us read God's word. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff of which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of the Lord. And he named that place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalekite came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalekite. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur were up to the top of that hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. When he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Then his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, even as I read this passage again this morning, I am humbled. There's so much here. There's no way to even to cover it all. But your word is true, and it needs to be preached. Give us ears to listen. May our hearts be fertile soil that the seed will fall and bear forth fruit. May our life be changed in a lot of different ways as you're going to change our lives in this church. We commit our time to you in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell by reading it, there's a lot there. And this is supposed to be one chapter of my book. And it's hard to get it through. Let me ask some questions before we get into it. Do you remember the works and miracles of God in your life? 
Could you sit down and write a page or more of all those works? Could you do it for the last week? The last two weeks? What about the last month? Last two months? So you need to separate when they occur because there's importance tied to them. The last year. The last two or three years. It's important to remember what God has done in our lives. It's important. But the children of Israel, they forget God's work, works and miracles. And they have only been on the march for less than about 40 days. 40 days. How can you forget what God has done in the last 40 to 45 days? And the scriptures record in the Psalms, they did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness. They forgot his power. Or in Nehemiah, they erred arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to his commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember his wondrous deeds he performed for them. Why? What's the cause of such forgetfulness? This generation had learned to walk by sight and not by faith. They say, what have you done for me recently? We hear that today. But God requires faith and faith alone in him and his word. What we're looking at today is the fourth test of the sons of Israel, the test of God. And remember now the comment I made. The word test is a priority that God has to test man. Man does not have that priority to test God, and God considers that sin. And actually Deuteronomy says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And if you remember the words of Jesus at the in the wilderness when he responded to, to Satan you should not put the Lord your God to the test he's quoting these same words the sons of Israel had done it this is their fourth test so it's a little frightening now in your notes I tried to connect connection of the time dots and I started you got to understand, I had to chase down some rabbit trails. And it took me roughly two days to get it solidified. And so what I have done is given you a basic table here. They left Egypt, as you'll see in the scriptures, month one, day 15. That's when they left. Their first test was at the Red Sea. They had too much water. Then they came to Mara. The water 
was bitter. It was too little water. And the time frame now was March and April. That is somewhat of the wet season at that time. March and April, the wet season. Then comes Elam, and then the wilderness of sin. There was evidently water sources there, but there was no food. And so God provided quail and manna. But you must remember they had to bake the manna or boil the manna, so they needed water. And so there was water there in the wilderness of sin, because it was still the wet time. And then they travel to Rephidim, but there's two. If you go to Exodus 33, and see, this is all your homework. You've got to do the background work. There are two other stops. And, and remember, remember, this passage it says they traveled in stages from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim. So there were several stops, I think only two. Dafa and Alush. And what started all the trouble I had in studying this passage, I have a commentary from 1850. I have a bunch of old commentaries from 1850. And the author commented that there was a well at Dafa, and there were springs, but there were also wadis, and wadis are where the water comes down the mountain through these sort of crevices and so forth. A lot of water, in fact, during the right time of year. And so he makes the case that there was probably water there. You've got to remember now, they have a million livestock. And my livestock can pick up moisture from good grass, and the wet season is just coming to the end. And they see... The mountains in the distance as they're getting closer, and the distance from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim is about, see, 14, I gotta add them up, up there, add numbers, about 45 miles, something like that. And so I had to analyze well, they had sheep. How fast can sheep move? Now, I'm not a sheep guy, I'm a cattle guy. And I know how fast cattle can move. But sheep move about a mile an hour. And so when you put down all the time frame, they would have got it at Rephidim in about 40 days. Now, why is that important? Here's why. There were six miracles in the 40 days. They had the cloud, they had the pillar of fire at night, and then they had the miracle of the Red Sea, the miracle of Merah, the miracle of the wilderness of sin, and now this miracle of Rephidim. Six miracles. God's there. Why can't you see it? And the problem we have these days, God does a lot of things like that today, but we don't have eyes to see we explain it away. And as I thought about this, I think too much sometimes, and I pray too much sometimes. 
If you followed something that happened in Death Valley, has anybody been to Death Valley? I've flown over it, but I've never been there. They have a super bloom, which they call super bloom of grass and flowers that, that has occurred in, in uh, 2019, and it occurred again recently. And the whole desert, which doesn't get much water, it doesn't take much water, it just sprouts up. And we don't know here whether they had a super bloom either. We have no idea. The scriptures don't tell us. But I don't think their thirst was extreme. They had some water, but not a lot. Maybe it was inconvenient to carry, to look for. They were stretched, and you need to understand that's God's way. He always stretches us. That is his way, working with men. So we see the sons of Israel contending with Moses and the Lord. As God led the sons of Israel to Rephidim, they could see the mountain range with altitudes of 5,000 to 8,000 feet in the distance, high mountains, and it would build their expectation of cooler weather and water runoff. And this would have been part of the dry season. Their expectations were not met, so what did they do? Blame Moses. It's your fault, Moses. You let us. No, it's not my fault. And Moses responds, you are testing the Lord. He identified what the situation and call it what it was. It was not his fault at all. And they accused him of bringing them out here to kill them. We've heard that before, too. But there's a little passage earlier in Exodus. And if you'll turn with me, I won't read it all. But I think it's Exodus 6. In Exodus 6 is what I call the seven I wills the Lord communicated to Moses. And I'm sure Moses communicated them to the people. I, I can't imagine he wouldn't have communicated them. He said, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the, la to the land. I will give it to you. Seven I wills. See, you can't miss the details of God's word. Seven I wills. You've got to cling to those I wills. This is what I will do for you. How could you forget those? Easy. When you've been a slave, it's only the present that makes a difference. You forget everything else, even if it comes from the mouth of God. So I question whether their thirst was really extreme. I think it was moderate. But look at now 
Let's look at Moses' response. His response is perfect. Going back, Exodus 6, 17. Look at what his response was in verse 4. Moses cried to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? He had no solution. That is the most powerful prayer to ever give, is to say, I'm helpless. I have no solution. I do not know what to do. I need to hear from you. I need you to do. I can't do it. We can't do it. Church has got to say the same thing. We can't do it. And we have to believe that. If we have a little speck in our heart where it says, oh, yes, we can, that's got to go. Moses is a perfect example of helplessness in prayer. We've got to come to that place. When my wife and I were dealing with her uh, cancer several years ago, we had no solutions. We had to go at God's direction. Two and a half years. When we had a son that was caught in drugs, youngest son was caught in drug culture here in, in Knoxville, we had no solutions. The only solutions we had, Lord, I don't know what to do. You're going to have to work out what needs to be done. Show me how to step out, what to do. God brings all of us to places like that. He can't perfect us unless he breaks us. That's his way. So I love the fact how Moses prayed. Totally helpless. And Moses even made the comment, his life was in jeopardy. In a little while more, they're going to stone me. I haven't been an elder in some other churches. I know that very well. In a little while, they'll stone me. And the Lord says, pass before the people. No fear. Take some of the elders, just like Jesus did. Take some of the apostles with you to the house of Jairus. Take some of them. Take your rod in your hand, the same one you used at the Red Sea. Go to the rock at Marriott, Horeb, and strike the rock once. It's very important. You remember once, because later on Moses strikes it twice. And that's not to be done. Christ was only died once for all our sin. Not a twice. And I put in the notes what happened after the striking. I'm trying to read my own writing for a minute. In Deuteronomy 8, he says he brought water out of a rock of flint. Do you have, have you ever, any of you ever seen flint rock? It is some of the toughest rock to drill through. I lived in Texas 
uh, our family ranch was uh, on a campground of the uh, Comanches. And so you could go out in the pasture. My mom and dad went out pastures all over the place. And you could pick up the flint arrowheads. They were very hard. And I worked for the highway department, and sometimes we, hit, we would have to drill holes, putting in signs, and you would hit flint rock. And you'd have these long, heavy steel bars you'd pick up and drop on the... And you couldn't crack it. All you could do is chip it away slowly. It is super hard rock. And that's what this water came out of. The most impossible situation. Nehemiah 9.15 says, He brought forth water. Psalm 78.15, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave abundant drink like the ocean depths. Think about the magnitude of that kind of water. Like ocean depths. Water flowed out. Psalm 105.41 says, It ran in dry places like a river. Like a river. Nothing. Everything's dry. Like a river. Notice the superabundance of God's resources. When God does it, he really does it. And it's all for his glory. Man can't take credit. We didn't drill a real hole. We didn't anoint the rock with oil. God struck it. We're out of the picture. Superabundance of God's resources. Wow. And we need a fresh perspective of that. It's still there today. The God, our God today is the same, and this is a sermon coming down the road, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And we think he's different, and he's not. Our God has not changed. He's still the same. Well, then what we see that happens is the conflict with the Amalekites. They're the enemy of God's people. And I want to look at the enemy strategy first. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. Sorry for the page turning, but you got to, when you're in the Old Testament, you've got to turn a lot of pages to get all the details. It's just the way it is. 25. Start in verse 17, and we'll just read through 18. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when he came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked you among you all the stragglers at the rear. See, the enemy's strategy is always to attack the stragglers. He attacks the stragglers in a congregation, he attacks the stragglers' aspects of our lives. He attacks those areas. He attacks stragglers in our families. 
He attacks the strategy. He, he hasn't changed his strategy at all. And he attacks from the rear. That's his way. Always. And notice, too, at your rear when you're faint and weary. Boy, isn't that the truth? Aren't we most susceptible to blowing it and sin when we're tired and faint and weary? We all know that. But we keep forgetting it. It, He comes when we're that way. We're exhausted. And we may be exhausted with disappointment, discouragement. There may be lots of reasons for it. Things didn't go our way this day. That's fine. That happens to all of us. We all go that way. And Amalek did not fear God. But there's another thing, too, about the strategy. He came when Israel was successful. So we need to always be aware that he's always on the prowl. And if we're successful in the task, he's waiting to attack again. And you've got to understand the Amalekites lived in this part of the world. And so whoever controlled the water controlled the whole region. Big, important resource. What was God's strategy? Well, it depends upon intercession. The intercession of Moses. Moses intercedes. He becomes weary. Prayer is hard labor. It is not easy. When I first started off in the ministry, I used to pray by my bedside. I couldn't do that. I would fall asleep so many times I couldn't ever get control of it. So I finally realized I have to walk and pray. I cannot, or stand and pray. I cannot kneel because the enemy wipes me out every time. So that's what I have discovered. And you got to, when you get down to pray or you walk to pray, you got to remember what to pray. You got to wisdom in your prayer from scriptures. And at all times, you must not lose heart. It's a labor. That's how, when you find, sometimes in churches, you find certain women who are really prayer warriors. They know how to pray, they've prayed for their kids, they've prayed for neighbors. We got to be that kind of people praying. We've got to be people praying. And people like that need the prayer support of others, of like mind. Aaron and her came around him. They had to support him. Because when his arms was up, they won in the valley. When his arms fell down, they lost. Now that tells me it's important to have immediate information on what is happening in the battle. So you can adjust your prayer. Maybe I need someone else to come alongside me to pray. He needed the support of the rock, which we all do. But secondly, God's strategy depends upon actions of faith, as illustrated by Joshua. He chose some best men, certain men. He used the sword, the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. 
He prevailed in relationship to prayer. There was a direct correlation. The battle was long, but Amalek was weakened. And they would eventually be totally destroyed, but it took hundreds of years. Saul didn't destroy the Amalekites. David did. Hezekiah had to deal. It took hundreds of years to deal with. It's not an easy battle. But God's in control. Well, let's look at some of their life response. Some of these are for encouragement. Some of them for mother study. Some of them are to reflect on. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. That's Deuteronomy 32. Their rock. I don't care what rock the world has. It's not like our rock. You need to recognize that way. Pray that way. Shut down all this garbage. God's people must be praying. Not just here, all around. Their water is not like our rivers of living waters. Jesus makes reference to living waters. There's reference to the rock. Christ is involved in this whole passage. The rock, the living waters, waters the depth of the ocean. He's here in this passage. And later, later, in Psalm, uh, in Isaiah 80, 44, 8, is there any God beside me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. I know of none. See the words of David in 2 Samuel 22, and I encourage you to read through that. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Take, take passages like that and pray them back. Put your circumstances there. Our church there. Our nation there. We've got to learn to do that. Well, if anybody knew that, David did. He went through the highs and lows of all of it. But that's a passage, that's an application of encouragement. Just do it. Set aside day that you're going to do it. I have days of the week I pray for different things. But set aside a day, oh, I'm going to pray through one of David's psalms or some of his words. Choose a day to do it. Number two, the cries of fear, forgetfulness, expectations, and unbelief were met by Moses' cry of helplessness to God. That is true prayer that God always answers. He always answers it. Because we are weak. And he is strong. <laughs> we have seen a lot of that in our family. And I hopefully you have too. Three, the hemming in or corning process is God's way that we might trust him more and not the past or worldly solutions. He desires us to be intimate with him, not just familiar. Intimacy involves a true knowing of him, while familiarity is the illusion of knowing, which has no substance 
or faith underpinning us. Just think about people that you consider friends. You have what you, I'm just familiar with them. You really don't know them. You really don't know them. God wants intimacy with them. Number four, we've already talked about the enemy strategy. Um, he attacks at the water hole. And I tell you what, when I sit down to study the word, the enemy has attacked already before I started. He attacks. He does not want you feasting the word of God. He does not want you chewing on it. He does not want you meditating on it. That's how come we've got to hide it in our hearts so God can bring it to mind wherever we are. And the divine strategy of prayer is as follows. It's a labor. We need support of like-minded believers, two or three. Persistence. We must be informed. The sword of the Spirit is needed. Earth governs heaven. Look at Matthew 18. I won't go through it. Earth governs heaven. But it's going to have to be small steps of faith as well. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. But I'm afraid we will say, Tennessee football is my banner. My job is my banner. My hobby is my banner. My kids are my banner. My fame is my banner. College professor says, it, my intellect is my banner. My research is my banner. There's all sorts of banners, but those are not the banners God wants us to have. Our banner is supposed to be, Lord Jesus Christ is our banner. That's got to be the banner. There's no other banner that we need to fly. So you have homework. And I'm going to check back on you on the next time I teach the next topic. Let's pray. Father, we truly are weak. But I thank you for the example of Moses. He didn't know what to do. He cried that to you with his all his heart and soul. I don't know what to do. They're going to stone me. And we all feel that at times. Encourage us as we pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this community, in this church, in this state, our nation. Father, may we be the people of prayer, but doing what you've called us to do, reaching out, small steps of faith, sharing our faith as a way of life. We have opportunity. Help us be faithful, what you've given us to do. In Christ's name, amen.